Welcome to the Reflections on Parkinson's Disease podcast. In this podcast, we hope to demystify Parkinson's disease, looking at everything from the basics to the cutting edge. Whether you are a healthcare professional, sufferer, carer, or family member looking to learn more, leading experts, Professor Baz Bloom and Professor Werner Poover will help uncomplicate the subject. Orwin presents Reflections on Parkinson's Disease podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to number three in our podcast series, Reflections on Parkinson's Disease. I'm Werner Pöwe, and I'm pleased again to be here with my friend and colleague, Bas Blom, from Nijmegen in the Netherlands. Um, today, we would like to focus a little bit on why patients develop fluctuations. We spoke about those last time, but now today we want to reflect a little bit on the reasons behind them, why they occur, and of course also how, how they could be treated. And again, I'd like to thank Bial for their support uh, with this particular podcast. Um, Baz, we, we, spoke about, we spoke about motor fluctuations a little bit the last time. Now, patients develop them not from the moment go, but usually takes a while before they become apparent. And what what are the mechanisms? Why is this? Why levodopa doesn't change? It's the same drug they take from the very beginning. Why does it work in a smooth and stable fashion initially? And why then after maybe shorter than a year, usually longer than a year, several years, these fluctuations appear? Well, it appears there are several mechanisms at play. Uh, first of all, the levodopa that we give orally is absorbed by the person's own substantia nigra and their dopaminergic neurons that are still surviving are releasing the dopamine in a timely fashion. So as the disease progresses, that buffering function is diminished so that the plasma uh, concentrations start to mirror the clinical effects much more. So that is what you would call a pharmaco kinetic effect. There is also a pharmacodynamic effect. Probably the way we are treating or stimulating these dopaminergic receptors is not a very physiological way of doing so. So the dopamine receptors change their sensitivity in response to the medication, and that also plays a role in the response fluctuations. But there's a third element which I think is important and perhaps even underestimated, and that is the role of the gut. Uh, we talked about the unpredictable response fluctuations, um, people responding well to the first two, three doses um, during any given day, and then the third or the fourth dose will suddenly not work at all anymore. This is obviously not because the levodopa is different. It's not because your disease has suddenly changed, but it may be because the, the gut is standing in your way. And we know that there is delayed gastric emptying. We know that there is such a thing as bacterial overgrowth or constipation, and a variety of issues revolving around the gut can interfere or hamper, in particular, levodopa's efficacy. Yeah, that's um, something that I think is very important for counseling for patients. Um, sometimes it happens to me that patients will come back and say that the drug is not working very well, at least the second dose of the day isn't working very well. And then uh, I found out that they're taking the drug together with their meal time, with yeah. their main meal. Uh, and then it's important to explain people that number one, levodopa cannot be absorbed from the stomach. 
there is just no way for lipidopa absorption. It's required to leave the stomach and to be um, present in the proximal intestine, the jejunum, the duodenum, where there is a very, very efficient mucosal absorption system, the levodopa. And we all have these uh, carrier proteins there in our gut mucosa that are specific even for the type of amino acid. Levodopa is an amino acid, a large neutral amino acid, where it, it, it shares the same transporters with other amino acids from the diet. So I remember vividly when I was um, in the 1980s, I was working in, in, in London and we were struck um, by a paper that came out from Jay Nutt. You, you Bas, mentioned Jay and his great work. Um, Jay Nutt had published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that um, this competition between amino acids and levodopa for absorption in the gut, which is a very valid phenomenon, that this also happens at the blood-brain barrier in a very elegant experiment where uh, they were given constant rate infusions to patients with Parkinson's to keep them absolutely constant in their motor function, the levodopa levels absolutely constant, bypassing the gut. And then they loaded them with amino acids. And sure, and sure, they were able with the large neutral amino acid loads to induce an off. And that's something they argued could only have happened at the blood-brain barrier. And those transporters were present there. And that's when I set out with Nico Lenders, your, your countryman. Nico was, uh, was working at the Hammersmith Hospital in the PET uh, unit. And we performed experiments with the Fluoridopa PET. And I was the probant. They, we, we didn't have time for a proper study because the, the scanner was going to be dismantled and replaced. So we were in a hurry. So we did an N equals one experiment. And I was the subject. And we did a, a fasting state, fluorodopa PET scan showing nice entry, luckily, uh, of uh, fluorodopa into my brain. I had a good tracer uptake bilaterally. And then we did, two weeks later, we did the same with a amino acid infusion. And sure enough, nothing, there was no fluorodopa <laughs> signal in my brain anymore. So we were able to show this. So that these, these, these uh, it's not uh, patients, and sometimes doctors think swallow the pill means it gets into your brain. It, it does not mean that. And you may you may want to comment on the esophagus as well, because you mentioned gastric motility. There's even some esophageal problem, isn't there, in, in Parkinson's, in swallowing? Yes, absolutely. I think um, the, the entire uh, route from swallowing all the way up to and including um, uh, the colon uh, is impaired in people with Parkinson's. And I think one practical recommendation, both for physicians and perhaps patients listening today, um, would be the advice to take the medication at least half an hour prior to meals or an hour after the meals to definitely avoid intake of medication simultaneously with proteins and to avoid peaks in protein intake. So I tell people, if you like a steak, spread your steak across the day instead of taking one huge steak at one at one moment uh, and the same time. Um, so this is something people can take home with them. I, I was actually wondering, sometimes you hear this advice, take your medication with sparkling mineral water. Yeah. Um, is that something that you're aware of or is this a, a myth or a fantasy? Well, I, I, I would think it's probably the water is the thing that matters, I think. So, so take it on an empty stomach, if possible, if you tolerate it. Um, luckily, most people tolerate it uh, and don't get nauseated when they take levodopa on an empty stomach. 
keep the timing, keep the levodopa away from the next meal by at least uh, 30, better 45 minutes. That's what it will take for a plasma peak to occur after the pill's been taken on an empty stomach. will get into the gut rapidly and the absorption is, is fantastically rapid when there is no competition around with food and dietary amino acids. But this sounds so simple, but uh, it's, it's, not always, it's not always appreciated and it's worth uh, discussing with people. Um, and take, take, we're back to this issue, Buzz. One has to take sufficient time for consulting patients and go into these details, what the meal habits are and, and what they should observe. Yeah. So these are, I think, very useful tips, again, for both physicians and for patients who are listening. Now, we've optimized the gut. Um, we've avoided the meals, um, but this will not alleviate all of the response fluctuations. Uh, there will still be the predictable fluctuations. There will still be dyskinesias. Now, let's take the patient who has predictable wearing off. There are no dyskinesias yet. What would be your prime strategy or what are strategies that people could resort to in order to find these predictable yeah. response fluctuations? Luckily, luckily, there's a lot we can do against motor fluctuations. It's, um, of course, increasing the dose size. That is an easy measure. Uh, if someone is on three daily doses with six hours between them and then has wearing off, one will have to space the doses closer together and introduce a fourth dose. But there's also ways to modulate the peripheral pharmacokinetic, as you mentioned, the short half-life, the ups and downs of the plasma levels, the swings, the oscillations are at the base of the problem of fluctuation in clinical response and control of, of symptoms. And we can prolong half-life of levodopa by blocking its peripheral breakdown. And the important enzyme here that, that, that uh, can be blocked is called COMT, uh, which is an enzyme that normally is not used very much to handle levodopa in the periphery, in the liver, for example, after, after ingestion. But when we block the main route, which is what we routinely do with the pills of levodopa, they're always a combination of something called decarboxylase inhibitor. Then this other enzyme, the COMT, becomes very active and important, and that can be blocked. And we have COMT inhibitors on the market. They're, they're established treatments, first-line therapies, and they optimize levodopa delivery. Um, same goes, in a way, for drugs that act in the brain and block the breakdown of dopamine, uh, so-called MAOB the name of the enzyme in the brain inhibitors. And again, they would have a contribution. We have longer acting drugs than levodopa that can be supplemented, adjuncted, dopamine agonists. And the spectrum goes further on into even invasive strategies uh, like giving levodopa with infusion pumps to make it continuously working. And uh, there are other agents that are similarly effective like apomorphine. So we have a whole spectrum, luckily, I'm entirely, when you mentioned in, I think in one of the previous podcasts, you mentioned deep brain surgery as well as yeah. an option. So two, two practical questions, if I may. Um, I hear this a lot from colleagues in, 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 in surrounding hospitals. They have a patient on an MEOB inhibitor and levodopa, and can they then combine it with a COMT inhibitor? Does the one exclude the other, or can you combine treatments in certain patients? I think that's, that's uh, a natural thing to do. And to optimize levodopa and to optimize dopamine substitution, this is what we want. We want to mimic the 
healthy situation of dopamine presence in the brain and in the motor system, uh, we need combinations. And doing two different, inhibiting two different enzymes, one that deals with the central breakdown of dopamine, the other that deals with the breakdown of levodopa in the periphery, it makes perfect sense, perfect logical sense to combine them. Yeah. And the other practical question that I had is that, of course, there some some years ago, we've had some concerns about uh, tolcapone uh, with its toxicity. Should mm. there be any concerns about toxicity for COMT inhibitors? Or would you generally think that the newer generation drugs mm. uh, are much safer? Luckily, this is this toxicity, this liver toxicity issue with tolcapone is not a class effect. It was really related mm -hmm. to the compound and the second compound that followed in history was, was entecapone. It doesn't have a liver problem and we've been using it for a long time now uh, so that there is no liver problem. Uh, and the most recent addition is opicapone. Uh, a drug that has certain advantages in terms of being a once-daily drug, for example, and producing less diarrhea as a side effect or, or, or no diarrhea. Um, that drug also has no liver problem and there's no, no need to monitor. So it's an easy, an easy to do treatment. Yeah, no, that's very useful to know. And um, so the, the other thing which is very interesting to, to, to talk about is um, once the response fluctuations are there, and you've nicely summarized the range of strategies that we have at our disposal, I know that scientists have been addressing the issue of trying to prevent these fluctuations from happening in the first place. And yeah. of course, one strategy that patients think is a helpful strategy is postponing the use of levodopa. Well, we talked about that in the first podcast. Delaying your treatment will not help you to get rid of the response fluctuations. It will deprive you from quality of life today. And once you take that moment to start the medication, after all, you will have a catch-up sprint mm -hmm. and develop those response fluctuations anyway. But the question, of course, is, are there certain strategies in de novo untreated patients that are wiser ways of starting in order to help and prevent? Or doesn't it, it, is it all equal? I think we've learned about the risk factors for the development dose is certainly one. So one will try and aim for the lowest effective dose. And there has been this cutoff uh, calculated from studies of 400 milligrams a day or dose related to body weight of four or five milligrams per kilogram. This is something that if, can't always be done because patients have to be given what they need in terms of, of dose. Um, to give you an honest answer, the ultimate strategy when we use levodopa to prevent, completely prevent these problems from occurring, we don't have it. Uh, CMT inhibitors have been tested in only one single trial because the idea was if we prolong the half-life, make it more discontinuous to the levodopa delivery, we can probably postpone these problems. That study failed and there were very many reasons in the design and nobody has had the courage to, to go back and, and, and do another trial. Uh, so I think this is one of the areas where we need to keep working. Of course, there are new delivery modes being developed. Uh, these continuous infusion therapies, they would be wonderful, of course, to do from the moment go and see if they prevent the problem. They should, in theory but they are invasive. These therapies are invasive. They require placement of tubes in the gut as they stand now. But as we develop better formulations of levodopa, better infusion therapies, maybe in future, we, we, we may see this prevention becoming possible. Yeah. 
I just wanted to mention one other drug that is perhaps um, neglected too much is amantadine. Mm -hmm. uh, amantadine is interesting when people have the involuntary movements, the choreatic yeah. dyskinesias, and amantadine can help to suppress those. It also right. has a mild anti-Parkinsonian effect. Exactly. It's interesting that you sometimes need to dose it right, sometimes mm -hmm. higher than you would normally think. So maybe up to 400 milligrams if people tolerate it. Concern, of course, always being the hallucinations or the psychosis. Um, just maybe in closing, the we've talked about all these strategies, and I think fortunately we can now fight these response fluctuations for many years. What what is in general a moment when you start to discuss one of the advanced treatments uh, in your patients? I, I start with advanced treatments um, for the listeners. You mean infusion therapies, deep brain stimulation, device-aided therapies. Exactly. Um, I start discussing them when I have exploited a number of these conventional measures, added my adjunct therapies, my enzyme inhibitors, played around with the dose, different combinations. And I can just see on the horizon, this will not, this will, this succeeds for the moment, but it will not do so for the next five years. And that's when I start telling people there's something up our sleeves, which we can do, so that they can start and familiarize themselves with the different techniques. Oftentimes, the first reaction is negative because it's more invasive or more cumbersome, and particularly when it comes to brain surgery. It's definitely something people don't immediately jump on, but giving them time to uh, familiarize themselves with it. And I think um, there is an individual component to this as well. When do you stop fiddling around mm. when you've reached your, I don't know, six doses a day and you already have your two enzyme inhibitors, you have an agonist on board and then you get side effects from all these combinations. This is clearly the point in time to rethink. Yeah, but you mentioned one very important element and I think this has been a major change probably in the past decade is this individualized element to Parkinson's. Yeah. Yeah. And it is really a matter of discussing it with your patient. I have people who prefer to be on 10 doses per day mm. rather than to even think about a device-aided therapy. And there are other people who, after the fourth dosing time, start to discuss advanced therapies. Yeah. So it's really a matter of personalized issues. And it also comes to the choice for an MEOB inhibitor, a COMT inhibitor, a dopamine agonist. I can highly recommend you inform your patients, make them part of the decision process, and the success of the treatment will be correspondingly larger. So I know we're approaching the end of the podcast. Any closing words, Werner, from your side for this particular? I, I would close on, on a note from what you just touched upon, Bas, um, to remind people of uh, the, the father of evidence-based medicine, Sackett, in his textbook. He said, in the end of the day, evidence-based medicine has three pillars to stand on, and that's the research evidence. That's the clinical experience of the treating physician, and that is patient perceptions and preferences. And the three together, they should guide our decisions. Um, Buzz, it's, um, I, I'd like to go on talking to you with this yes. discussion, but Same here. We, really, we, really need to, we really need to close. So um, maybe I can, I can thank the audience on behalf of both, both of us and hoping that, that you'll come, all come back. I'd like to thank Bial also on behalf of both of us and hope to see you with our next podcast. Yes, see you soon again. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast and look forward to seeing you next time. Don't forget to stay up to date with all the latest discussions and help spread awareness. Follow and subscribe. 
You can find us on your favourite podcast platform and oroin.com.